Lord, thank you that grace is here. Thank you that love has triumphed. Love has triumphed over death forever. Thank you. Thank you that we can gather here in your presence and in the presence of your grace. Everything that we have, everything that we experience is a gift from you, a gift of your grace. Our ability to be here this morning, the breath that we just took, a gift of your grace. And so, Lord, we come this morning with thanksgiving. We come this morning with joy. It is finished. It is done. Grace is here. Love is triumphed. And so, Lord, we celebrate these great truths together this morning. Draw our hearts together around your grace, around your love around your word. Speak to us this morning by your Holy Spirit. It's our prayer together as we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Life is not fair. You ever heard that before? How many of your kids used to say that? Yeah, boy, Tim's hand went up just like automatic back there. I remember my kids saying all the time, that's not fair. In fact, my son got into trouble in the Navy for saying those simple words that followed him for the rest of his Navy career. It's not fair. Why do bad things happen to good people? And as I say that, do any illustrations of that come to your mind in your own life or in the lives of other people? Good things, or bad things rather, happen to good people. Good people that love the Lord, good people that follow Jesus, and bad stuff happens. Life's not fair. My friend Tim suffered with a stroke at the age of 40. My friend Roy suffered for more than 20 years debilitatingly after a major stroke. My friend Bob, his first wife, they adopt, they got married, weren't able to have kids, adopted two young children, and then she contracted a rare and aggressive cancer. Gone at the age of 40, leaving him with two young children. Over the course of time, Bob remarried, and uh, now his wife Liz has Parkinson's. Bad stuff happens to good people, right? Life isn't fair. In fact, Rabbi Harold Kushner wrote a book almost 20 years ago, I think, with that title, Why Do Bad Things Happen to Good People? And good old Rabbi Kushner came to the conclusion that either God was good but not powerful, or he was powerful but not good. Because in his mind, if a God was both good and powerful, those bad things would never take place, right? That book became a quick bestseller on the New York Times book list. I've always wanted to write the sequel, though. Why do good things happen to bad people? I've gotten a lot of response to that. I could sell a bunch of those books right here this morning. Why do bad things happen to good people? And... 
Good things happen to bad people. I gotta get it right. Why do good things happen to bad people? You ever puzzled over that? You ever worked that through in your in your heart and mind? One of the biblical writers wrestled with this in a very fascinating way that we want to take a look at this morning. Asaph was the chief musician in King David's court. He was the worship leader. He was the, the Maggie Omeda of David's court, right? Out front, leading his voice, his body, his actions. And interestingly, his sons were also music worship leaders. So Asaph was in the court of David. Lived with David, served with David, knew David's life and struggles and challenges, and must have had some of his own. And so I want you to come with me this morning to Psalm 73. It's 28 verses long, and I want to read the whole passage for you. But before I read it, I want to kind of give you my outline. So if you're a note taker, this is your cue. Um, As we read through this passage, I want you to see Asaph wrestling with this issue. Why do good things happen to bad people? And so in the first three verses is what I'm calling this morning Asaph's frustration. He is one frustrated dude as he wrestles with this issue in his heart and mind. And so the first three verses express his frustration. And then the verses that follow, 4 through 17, is Asaph exploring this concept, this idea, trying to understand it. And so I call this section his findings. He goes from frustration, and in the midst of his frustrations, he finds three significant things that we're going to look at. And then beginning in verse 18 to the end, is Asaph now turns the corner and embraces faith. So he goes from frustration to his findings to faith. And so as, we, as I read, follow along in your Bible, whether you're reading a Bible or you've got a phone or you've got your iPad or your other tablet thing going on, uh, follow along. See what Asaph has to say for us this morning. I've got to find my way there. There it is. Surely God is good to Israel. To those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet came close to stumbling. My steps had almost slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant, and I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For there is no pains in their death, and their body is fat. They're not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like mankind. Therefore pride is their necklace. The garment of violence covers them. Their eye bulges from fatness. The imaginations of their heart run riot. They mock and wickedly speak of oppression. They speak from on high. They have set their mouth against the heavens and their tongue parades through the earth. Therefore his people return to this place and waters of abundance are drunk by them. And they say, how does God know? Is there knowledge with the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, and always at ease. They have increased in wealth. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure, and washed my hands in innocence. For I have been stricken all day long, and chastened every morning. 
If I had said, I will speak thus, behold, I should have betrayed the generation of thy children. When I pondered to understand this, it was troublesome in my sight. Until I came into the sanctuary of God, then I perceived their end. Surely thou hast set them in slippery places. Thou hast cast them down to destruction. How they are destroyed in a moment. They are utterly swept away by sudden terrors. Like a dream when one awakes. O Lord, when aroused, thou wilt despise their form. When my heart was embittered and I was pierced within, then I was senseless and ignorant. I was like a beast before thee. Nevertheless, I am continually with thee. Thou hast taken hold of my right hand. With thy counsel thou wilt guide me and afterward receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but thee? And besides thee I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from thee will perish. Thou hast destroyed all those who are unfaithful to thee. But as for me, the nearness of God is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all thy works. And so Asaph is wrestling with this issue. Why, why do good things happen to bad people? My human logic and your human logic would suggest that uh, bad things ought to happen to bad people, right? And so Asaph, in these first three verses, talks about his frustration. He is not a happy camper as he wrestles with this issue. And so he starts off with a confident expression of a truth that he has embraced. And that truth is what in verse 1? God is good. And right before that phrase, there's a simple little word. What is it? Surely. Some of your translations say, truly, or verily, or indeed. What does that word surely mean? There you go. I like that. Without a doubt. Etched in stone. He is so confident that this is true. Surely. God is good to Israel. He's good to the pure in heart. And as, as he's writing these words, as he's writing this song, remember this is a song that he composed. He is absolutely confident that his God is good. That his God is good to the nation of Israel, good to the pure in heart. By the way, who do you suppose finds themselves in the center of that pure in heart thing? Asaph, he's writing these words. He says, I'm confident God is good. He's good. He's good to me. So he embraces that truth. But what's his life experience telling him? What's his life experience telling him? He says, but, every time you see that word, but, that's contrast. But as for me, my feet came close to stumbling my steps had almost slipped. So he's got a truth that he embraces and believes, but his life experience gives him this sense that he's on a slippery slope. He's on a, a banana peel. And so the reason for this now becomes crystal clear as Asaph continues his song. 
My feet came close to stumbling. My steps had almost slipped. Why? What's his problem? Envious of what? The arrogant and the the wicked, the prosperous. So, he believes that God is good and pure heart. He would see himself in that category. And yet, his life experience is such that now he's envious of the wicked. He's envious of the immoral. He's envious of sinners. Why is he envious of them? There it is. The P word. Their prosperity. And what does it mean to be envious, by the way? You want what somebody else has. Exactly right on. You're, you're jealous. I heard that word. But if you're envious, you're, you want what they have. And so here's this guy, this worship leader, who believes that God is good, and he's struggling with this thought, and he finds himself envious of the wicked. Envious of the immoral. Wicked, envious of the sinful. Have you ever been there? I have. You know, sometimes you look around and you just go, this, this, just, this isn't working for me, you know. I'm missing something. What's going on? And I sense that in Asaph as I, as I read this song that he wrote. He's super frustrated. He's maybe beyond frustrated, right? I don't know if there's a little bit of anger alongside of that frustration. I don't know that, but I just wonder. And so he explores this struggle. He explores this challenge, this dichotomy. That's the right word, dichotomy, this split in his thinking. I have a God who is good, and we say he's good all the time, and all the time he's good. But Basil says, I believe that, but I'm not experiencing that. And so he goes on this exploration, if you will, in the next several verses, what I said before, I call his findings. He's exploring this. And so he looks three places in the verses that follow. He looks three places. He looks first at the wicked. What's their condition? What's their life? What are their lives like? And so you have this long section. He's envious, their prosperity. No pain and death. Their body is fat. Uh, that, that expression in the Eastern cultures was a sign of great prosperity and wealth. Because if you were poor, you didn't have food. And if you didn't have food, guess what? You weren't fat. And so he says, their body is fat. They're not in trouble. They're not plagued. They wear their pride like a necklace. They're proud of their accomplishments. They're proud of their prosperity. They're proud of their achievements. And Asaph is envious. Their eye, verse 7, I love verse 7, their eye bulges from fatness. Their imaginations of their heart run riot. They mock and wickedly speak. The waters, verse 10 says, the waters of abundance are drunk by them. One of your translations says the waters of abundance are drained by them. They are 
I think it's the Living Bible says something like this. These fat cats have everything their hearts desire. Elective. And so Asaph looks around him and he sees all this. And he's envious. He wants what they have. He wants to be fat. He wants to have an eye bulging with fatness. He wants a life that's not plagued with problems, right? So after he looks at what the, the rich, the wealthy have. By the way, do you remember a TV program? The 70s maybe? Some of you weren't here then, I get that. Um, Robin Leach had a TV program. Remember what it was called? Robin Leach, man! So, lifestyles of the rich and famous. And so every week you turn on your TV and Robin would take you through these fabulous homes, these fabulous gardens. You, you know, I don't know if they ever went into, into Jay Leno's garage with his, you know, 1,500 cars. But you just were, were bombarded with the abundance and the wealth, the lifestyles of the rich and famous. That's what Asaph is looking at. He's looking at the lifestyles of the rich and famous. And he just says, I don't get it. I don't get it. So, after he looks around, where does he look next? Looks inside. And so the verses that follow, uh, beginning in verse 13. By the way, verse 13 begins with an interesting word. What is it? What? There. Well, mine begins with the word surely, or verily, or truly. Um, haven't we seen that word once before? So in verse 1 he says, Surely God is good. Now he says, Surely in vain I've kept my heart pure. Heart pure. Have we read that before? What's verse 1 say? Surely God is good to Israel and to the pure in heart. And so Asaph looks within... He sees himself as a godly man. He sees himself as this worship leader in King David's court. He sees himself as a man who, to the best of his ability, has kept his heart pure. But he's looking out there at all the rich and famous Robert Leach's crowd. And what conclusion does he come to? It's been a waste of my time. This is vanity, emptiness without purpose. I have lived a godly, pure life for nothing. It's all vanity. He says, I've, in vain, I've kept my heart pure, washed my hands in innocence. I've been stricken all day long, chastened every morning. And he says in verse 15, if I speak like this, if I talk about this, I'm going to betray your children. I'm going to cause others to struggle, to stumble. I, I can't even talk about this. So he, my sense of things is, he's wrestling with this good stuff happening to bad people thing, and it's vain and empty and purposeless that he has kept himself pure, and he can't talk about it to anybody.
I'm sure I've told you the story before sometime in the last four years. But I had a young couple in the church I pastored in Sacramento back in the early 80s. And the husband, Rich, became a good friend. We spent time together. I would meet him for lunch once a week. And over lunch, we would share scriptures together. And he was growing and learning. And I saw him as a potential future leader in the church. He had a lot of great qualities about him that I loved and valued. And so I kind of had that vision for Rich as we would go have lunch. And I'll never forget sitting at the A&W Root Beer on the bluff overlooking the American River in Sacramento having lunch with Rich. And he told me, I'm done with this Christian thing. He said, my brothers are unbelievers, pagans. They got more money, better cars, bigger houses. And he went through the list of all the things his brothers had that he didn't have. He said, and he literally said the words, I'm going to go back and live like them. I never saw him again. Every once in a while, I wondered where Rich is today, where his family is. Looking around, coming to the conclusion that this is a waste of my time. How could I be so wrong? Have you ever been on the edge of that kind of a decision? Have you ever wandered in your thought processes struggling with truth and life and found yourself at the point of making that decision, I'm going to abandon this Christian thing and go back to life the way it was before? That's where Asaph is. He says, this is, this is purposeless. It's a waste. It doesn't work living my life the way God says. It doesn't work living a life of obedience to God's truth. It doesn't work. Look at the fat cats. They have everything they need. He's looked around. He's looked inside. And finally, in verse 17, where does he look? Yeah. He says, this is the turning point for Asaph right here. This is, this is the, the, the big U-turn in this chapter. Because he says in verse 17, it's vanity, it's purposeless, it's empty, I'm done. Until, until I came into the sanctuary of God. It's in God's presence that we find truth. It is in God's presence that we understand what's real. You can introspect and contemplate till the cows come home, and you're never gonna figure life out, right? You're never gonna figure life out. You can look inside and ponder, you can consider the words of experts worldwide. You're never going to figure life out until you come into God's presence. All the injustices, all of the unfairnesses, I don't know if that's a word, I just made it up. 
They will never make sense until you come into the presence of God. Have you experienced any injustice in your life? Have you experienced a time when you were wronged in a really significant strategic way? Have you ever experienced an injustice that altered the course and path of your life? You're never going to understand those times in your life if you're looking in here. Our culture says, just follow your heart. That is the stupidest advice you are ever going to hear. <laughs> what does the Bible say? The heart is what, Steve? Wicked, deceitful. It's desperately sick, one of the translations said. Your heart is desperately wicked. Who can know it? Follow your heart. <laughs> I remember a period in my life, 30 years ago this year, where I went through a time of, I would say, the greatest injustice in my life. I struggled with that for a period of time. And then God in His providence led me to Psalm 34. And it was in reading, reflecting, and meditating on Psalm 34, being in God's presence, that I came to understand how God wants to use injustice and unfairness in my life. If you would have asked my wife that year, later that year, <laughs> she would have told you that that period of life was the best thing that ever happened to us. It took me a while to come around to that. But it wasn't because of introspection. Introspection led me to depression, to anger, to the seeking of revenge. Introspection led me down all the wrong paths. So, I get it, Asaph. I get it when you say, until I came into the sanctuary of God. You see, things change for Asa when he came into God's sanctuary. Coming into God's presence gives you a whole new picture of things. Everything's changed. Because now he sees the prosperous wicked in a new light. And look what he says. Surely, well there's our word surely again. Interesting. He started off, surely God is good. Surely in vain I kept my heart pure. Now he says, surely thou hast set them in slippery places. Well, back in verse 2 and 3, he was the one in slippery places, right? He says, I'm on the edge, I'm going down, I'm on that banana peel. He's got a whole new perspective on the wicked now, the prosperous. Thou hast set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. They are destroyed in a moment, utterly swept away. Whole new, whole new perspective. What gave him that new perspective on life and life's unfairnesses and injustices? What was it? Verse 17. What is it, Linda? Being in God's presence. Absolutely. He slipped 180 degrees. Not only does it have a new perspective on the wicked, the prosperous, 
in verse 21, he has a, a new way of looking at himself. He says, when my heart was embittered, that, that word could be translated fermented, like something, a sour, sour drink or something that is fermented. He says, when I was embittered, I was pierced within. I was senseless and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. So, he's come to the conclusion that all of his thought processes as he was evaluating this, looking around him, all of this, he was ignorant. He was senseless. We might say, we would say maybe in the, the kindest way we knew how, he was really stupid. He says, I was totally senseless. I was ignorant. I was like an animal. I was like a beast. Nevertheless, nevertheless, even as an ignorant, stupid beast, I am continually with thee. Thou hast taken hold of my right hand. That word taken hold is to seize in order to possess. And he says, I may have been stupid, but at least I was stupid in your presence. <laughs> I love Asaph. What a guy. He sees himself in this whole new light. And then he comes to a brand new conclusion. <laughs> with thy counsel, of verse 24, with thy counsel, you're going to guide me. Afterward, you're going to do what? Receive me up to glory. So he just said, what's going to happen to the prosperous wicked? They're on, they're on the slope. They're slipping. They're on the way to destruction. What's his confidence? I'm on my way to glory. I'm on my way to glory. Life may not be fair, but I'm on my way to glory. I like that. I'm on my way to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? Besides you, pay attention now, this is a key verse. Besides you, I desire what? What? A little louder. With conviction. Nothing. What does the word nothing mean? Zippo, nada, not one thing. Besides you, Lord, besides the nearness of your presence, I desire not one single other thing in life. Can you say that this morning? I have this thing I've been doing for a number of years. When we're out to eat at a restaurant, the waiter or waitress will come and ask, is there anything else that you'd like? Is there anything else I can get for you? And my standard answer to that question is, you know, there is one thing I really like. I would love to have an 89 Porsche Carrera. <laughs> my wife's getting very tired of hearing that. Um, but I get a variety of responses to that. But you know, we have, we have things we desire out of life. We have things that we want. Things that matter to us. And Asaph has run this whole gamut 
of his thought processes, his struggling, his frustration, his, his finding out these things, and he's come to this faithful confidence in his God, and he says, I only desire one thing. I haven't seen the movie for a number of years, but I love the movie City Slickers. And uh, the basic theme of the movie is three dudes from the city go to a, a dude ranch and they're on a cattle drive, right? And who is it that plays Curly, the old grizzled cowboy? Who is it? Jack Palance. Jack Palance? So Curly is the, the old grizzled cowboy and he's got these three dudes and they're out chasing cows. It's a hilarious movie. I love it. But there's a part of the movie where Curly is telling these three dudes, there's just one thing. Just one thing in life. Just one thing matters. Just one thing. And they're going, so what is it? And, and he's not responding to that, you know. And, and the bottom line in this whole one thing with Curly is he's telling them, you got to figure out what it is. There's just one thing that really matters. You've got to figure it out. Well, I want to tell you this morning, you've got to figure it out if you're tracking in this passage of Scripture. Because he says, Lord, besides you, there ain't one single thing I desire but you. My flesh and heart may fail me. Headed to the grave. Flesh and heart failing. But God's the strength of my heart, my portion forever. Those who are far from you will perish. You've destroyed all those who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, but as for me, why does that phrase sound familiar? But as for me, well, you're, you're, not, you're, you're thinking, and that's good, but you're not reading the text. Do you remember where we started all the way back up in verse 1, 2, and 3? He says, surely God's good, but as for me, now, you guys who were studying the book of Psalms with me several months ago, remember the bookends? Here's bookends. But as for me, I was slipping, I was stumbling, I was falling. This whole thing of God being good isn't working for me. And now he comes full circle. But as for me, the nearness of God is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all thy works. He couldn't talk back in verse uh, 15, 16. I can't talk to this generation. I can't betray this generation. There's no one for me to talk to. Now what's he want to do? He wants to tell everybody. God is good. God is good. Even though the, the wicked prosper, even though... I'm not prospering like they do. The only thing that really matters in my life is what? The nearness of God. The nearness of God. He's got it figured out. He's got it figured out. Because you see, the seeming injustices and unfairnesses of life are all settled by God in the end. There's the story of the Midwestern farmer who would be out in his fields 
plowing on Sunday morning as the cars went by his farm to the church. And he would kind of shake his fist at the people on their way to church as he was plowing his fields. When harvest time came, his harvest was the biggest and best harvest in the county. And he was so excited and so proud. And he took out an ad in the local paper announcing the, the quantity of crop that he'd harvested. How good it was and how other people should be envious of his great achievements and accomplishments. How well his farm was done did. And in the, at the end of his diatribe, if you will, he says something like, If a guy like me can prosper like this, then God really doesn't matter. Several Christians got together and put an ad in the paper the next day. And that ad said, God doesn't always settle his accounts in October. There you go. The unfairnesses and injustices of this life are all going to be settled in the end. They're all going to be settled. So there was this guy who decided to jump from the top of the Empire State Building 97 floors. And so he thought it'd be fun to jump off the Empire State Building. And as he's falling, jumps, and as he's falling, going past floor 90 and doing somersaults and twirls and having the time of his life. And he's coming down past floor 70, 72, and he's just having the time of his life. There's a group inside that they're all gathered together to celebrate staying on the ground or staying on roofs. And he's kind of shaking his fist and cursing at them. And on he goes down the... Floor 47 and finally floor 32 and floor 16. He's still having fun and thinking, you know, I wonder what's going to happen. I'll think about it when I get down to maybe floors 4 or 5. Well, then he came to floor 10, 9, 8. Well, you know where that winds up, right? Wow. <laughs> what's the most important part of that story? Jumping off the top or landing on the bottom? You see, Asaph's confidence was the prosperous wicked have jumped off the top of the Empire State Building, but their end is certain. And the nearness of God is my good. Surely God is good to Israel, to the pure in heart. And he winds up using that word good again, and that word good is used how? The nearness of God is my good. The nearness of God is my good. So where are you today? Do you find yourself struggling with bad people, being prosperous, successful, by the way, whenever you compare yourself to others, it's, it's, it's going to be a crisis one way or the other. On any level, comparing yourself to other people is a dead-end street. You compare yourself to others and you decide you're doing better than they are, and now you're, you're proud and conceited. 
Or you look at them and you're worse off than they are and now you're depressed and discouraged. So where are you at today? Do you find yourself asking why about the injustices, the unfairnesses of life? One of the things I love about our God is He can handle those why questions. God and I have had a lot of those why question conversations. He can handle those. And He's always got answers if you stay close to Him. He always has answers. So is the nearness of God your good? Is that the one thing that matters the most in your life today? Your relationship with God. Your closeness with Him. Your nearness with Him. Or have you kind of wandered away, distracted by other stuff in life? God always calls us to return. Step into God's sanctuary. Step into His presence. To return. To recommit yourself to Him. Rest in His promises. I've been reading, as I told you in January, I've been reading through Psalms and Proverbs every month. Five chapters of Psalms, one chapter of Proverbs. And interestingly, yesterday in Proverbs chapter 23, verse 17, I read these words. Do not let your heart envy sinners, but live in the fear of the Lord always. That's God's wisdom for us. And so if you've committed your life to Jesus, but you find yourself kind of at a distance... He's calling you this morning into His sanctuary, into His presence. The one thing, Lord, besides you, I desire nothing on this planet. I don't really need an 89 Porsche Carrera, right? The nearness of God is a lot more important. It's still fun to get a response from a waiter, but that's another story. And so also this morning, if you've not yet come to put your faith and trust in Jesus... If you've not yet come to the point of that last song that we sang, that it is finished, it's done, it's completed. Our sinfulness, our, our disobedience, our pay for at the cross of Jesus, and He invites us to come. God's message to us is, there's so much more than the prosperity of this life, right? So much more. And so God says, I love you. I want a relationship with you. I invite you to come for forgiveness. I invite you to come to, to be my child. But he invites us to come and to repent, to turn away from our sinful ways, our sinful attitudes, and to turn toward him and put our faith and our trust in Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. And part of the message of this psalm is that the end is the end of destruction apart from Jesus. The end is the same, kind of similar to the guy jumping off the Empire State Building. God invites us to come.
to his nearness, to his presence. And so I encourage you with the words of Asaph, the nearness of God is your good. And if you find yourself this morning confused with the prosperity of the wicked and your circumstances and how come good stuff happens to bad people and how come bad stuff happens to good people. I read the story some time ago of a missionary far from home, dependent on the funds of folks at home to send support every month. And she became desperately sick. Funds did not arrive. She had almost no money. And she believed she would improve physically. Her health would get better if she could just get better food. And all she could afford was plain white rice. I can't imagine living on plain white rice for a month. But she had no funds, no, no means of doing anything but plain white rice for a month. Desperately sick that whole entire month, eating this white rice. She finally got better and improved and... A few, later, a few years later, she was having a conversation with a medical doctor back at her home church talking about this experience. And this medical doctor told her, he said, well, what were your symptoms? And the, the woman quoted the symptoms that she experienced, the struggles she had physically. And he said, well, you know, if I'd been your doctor and you'd consulted me then, I would have prescribed for you to eat nothing but white rice for a month. You know, we think we know what's best. We think we know what's right. The one who knows best is the Lord. Surely God is good to Israel. It's good to the pure in heart. And I take confidence and comfort and courage and help in the phrase, if you can't trace his hand, trust his heart. Don't understand, don't figure it out. You can always trust his heart, right? And that's why Asaph says, The nearness of God is my good. That's the one thing. And so, Lord, our prayer this morning is that you would reaffirm in, in our hearts that our, our faith is not in vain, our faith is not purposeless, it's not a waste. Yes, there's others more prosperous. Yes, there's others with less struggles. But our relationship with you is what matters the most. Your nearness is what's most important. And so, Lord, help us just this morning to reaffirm that simple truth. That your nearness is our good hope. The time that we spend in your presence, time in your word, time in prayer, time in fellowship with others, time in worship with others. Your nearness is the most important thing. It's your nearness that gives us perspective on the stuff of life. It's drawing close to you that helps us understand that the injustices, the unfairnesses aren't all going to be settled in October. But they will be settled. And so, Lord, increase our faith, our trust, our confidence in you. 
But surely you are good. You're good all the time. And all the time you're good. And we're grateful for that. We love you. And we express our thanks, our appreciation. In the name of Jesus. Amen.
Lord for the reminder that hope has a name. The stuff of life oftentimes requires us to have hope. And Lord, I pray especially this morning for anyone here in our midst, anyone watching online who finds themselves struggling to have hope. That you would draw near to that one in a very special way this morning. You would draw near with the promise of the words that we had just sung. That hope has a name. His name is Jesus. And so thank you for the hope that we have in Jesus. And thank you that we can go out these doors this morning into a world that desperately needs hope. We go out these doors to encounter friends, neighbors, relatives, total strangers that need hope. Life is difficult. Life is hard. Stock market drops significantly in one day. Physical difficulties come. And we're thankful for the promise of hope. That your grace is sufficient. And that you are the the author of hope and peace. My prayer is that you would bless each one this morning with your hope, your peace as they trust in you. Might they discover this week in a fresh new way that the nearness of God is their good. Thank you, Lord, for doing that. As we ask together in Jesus' name. Amen. You'll find lots of opportunities in your bulletin, by the way, to draw near to others as perhaps a way of drawing near to God. Many small groups this week. Women tomorrow night. Men Tuesday night. uh, Best group Tuesday night. Another group Wednesday night. Our new Spanish Bible study started uh, this last Wednesday. There's more stuff going on than I can keep track of. I've lost track already. So continue to draw near to God. He is your good.